0: Welcome to the Jonah Carey Podcast, friends. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today's guest is a good one. It's Tom Schieber. Who is Tom Schieber, you might ask? He's the Senior Curator for the Baseball Hall of Fame, I gladly answer. Tom was kind enough to take myself and my wife, Amy, on a tour of the Hall of Fame behind the scenes. It was so cool. Uh, such Nuggets of ephemera and weirdness and obscurity. I actually asked him over the course of the podcast, can other people get this tour? And he said, well, no, uh, it's only given out to certain people. Honestly, I don't know if all these, if everybody would dig this kind of thing because you can go so deep. It's like a mystery. Uh, like if you want the Babe Ruth stuff, as he said, you have to go to the main hall. You're going to get it there. But if you want the really weird, weird, weird stuff, um, this is where you go. Uh, you find Tom and you beg. Uh, And he was kind enough to take us on the tour. And so he kind of walks through what it's like to be the senior curator for this living, breathing museum, this cool place, the Baseball Hall of Fame. So much weird, neat stuff. We talk about Christy Mathewson's license plate and just old, old, old play-by-play accounts in the paper from 1868 and it's just such a deep dive man if you love baseball or history, or uncovering mysteries, things like that, this is the podcast for you. Tom does this for a living, and he just takes such pride, joy in it, and I could have sat with him all day when he gave the tour, and honestly, I love listening to him talk about on the podcast, too. It's really, really deep, but if you like the John Thorne podcast from a couple of weeks ago, it's sort of along those lines, except even deeper, Uh really, really my jam, you could probably sense the excitement as I'm uh, talking to Tom, I love this kind of stuff. Uh it's my podcast I get to do what I want and this is uh exactly up my alley this kind of thing just ultimate nerdery. so uh, thanks to Tom for coming on the pod and I hope you enjoy it hey let's talk about this week's sponsor friends A couple sponsors we got quip listen the truth is most of us are brushing our teeth long wrong not for long enough forget to brush our teeth on time we stink at it it's because most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing but not quip So what makes Quip so different, you may ask? Well, I answer, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes while still packing just the right amount of vibrations to help clean your teeth. It's got a built-in timer so you can brush for the recommended two minutes. That's recommended by dentists. And the subscription plans are for your health, not just convenience. You get new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule, that's every three months, for just 5 bucks, including free shipping worldwide fantastic hey how about this we got an offer for you too quip starts at just 25 bucks and if you go to getquip.com slash jonah right now you'll get your first refill pack free with a quip electric toothbrush that's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash jonah that's g-e-t-q-u-i-p dot com slash jonah get quip and get better healthier cleaner teeth thank you to quip for sponsoring the podcast. Let's do some programming notes. Uh, we have our usual assortment of stuff over at CBS HQ. That is where you will find most of my work these days uh, appearing on cam. So go to cbssports.com, uh and uh, you'll see at the bottom of the page, it's got a link to HQ, and just head over there. Uh, 24 hours a day, news and analysis, all kinds of stuff, not just baseball. NFL season's coming up. You can get into that. You got NF, uh, NBA offseason, NHL offseason, uh, there's everything you could possibly ask for is there. And of course, lots and lots of baseball. Myself, Matt Snyder, we got David Sampson, we've got Jim Bowden, we've got a whole bunch of people talking baseball, but lots and lots of me. Man, if you want to hear me talk about baseball, you've come to the right place. Go to CBS HQ and check all that out. Uh, one more sponsor, friends, and that is Lightstream. If you're thinking about saving money this summer, why not start by paying less on your credit card balances? Debt is horrible; it stinks. You could do better than whatever rate your rip-off credit card company is offering you. Just refinance with a credit card consolation, consolidation loan rather from LightStream. It's an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from just 5.89% on APR with autopay. That's like way, way cheaper than credit cards. I don't even need to read this to tell you that. Uh, the average credit card interest rate is about 18%. So yeah, you're talking below six. That is obviously much better. You can get your funds as soon as the day that you apply. Listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Jonah. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Jonah. If you are having trouble with debt, this will help quite a bit. Recommend Lightstream. Check them out. Also, here's my disclaimer. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit LightStream.com for more information. I should be like one of those guys who could say those things really fast. Thank you to LightStream for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, and uh, before we go, sportsnet.ca, you will see a new story by me uh, on Thursday. And then I'll be doing TV for Sportsnet, I believe, on Friday as well. So you can check me out there. CBS and Sportsnet, my kindly employers. And I hope that you employ your ear holes to listen to this edition of the Jonah Kerry Podcast. It is with Tom Schieber. Enjoy. Like that, Tom Schieber. We are recording. How are you? I'm doing
1: well, Jonah. How are you doing?
0: Great. Uh, Senior curator, is that the term of the uh, title that you hold at the Baseball Hall of Fame?
1: It is, yeah. I'm the the senior curator, which basically means, honestly, that I head up the curatorial department, which um, has a few curators involved, and we work with our exhibits and design department, and that whole group of people, I don't know, maybe it's like eight or ten of us, I guess mm. I, I can not I can't count that high.
0: Uh, are the ones who put together the exhibits. And the way that I describe you, you know, after spending that weekend in Cooperstown is, oh, I have this friend, he's a detective for a living, and they say, a detective? Wow, how does that work? Does he, I don't know, track down cases and solve crimes or whatever? No, no, not exactly. He'll uh, find a picture right. of, of Ty Cobb and then try to figure out what it all means, which is uh, a pretty cool thing. And, and thank you so much, um, first of all, for uh, taking me and my wife Amy on uh, the tour of the hall. And it just felt like so much fun because the whole thing was sleuthing. So I think before you even get going on some of your favorite stories, on some of your favorite finds as you've gone along, How did you get into this? Were you a history major? Were you a baseball nut as a kid? How did it all kind of come together for you as a career? Um, well, uh, no, I was not a history major. I actually
1: really didn't like history and wasn't particularly good at history when I was in high school. I didn't take any in college. I totally avoided it in college. I was actually, uh, I went into the sciences. So I worked before my job at the Hall of Fame. I worked for a dozen years in astrophysics. That isn't very different. has nothing to do
0: no. with baseball research.
1: But um, it afforded me, actually, as it turns out, the job that I was doing, um, I had a lot of downtime, and so I actually could do a lot of baseball research while uh, a telescope was doing some, you know, a, a computer-operated telescope was doing some analysis. Huh. Uh, I would have an hour and a half or two hours of downtime before I had to set up another observation. And so uh, yeah, I got a lot of baseball research done doing doing. Uh, solar physics is what I was into. But um, how did I get into it? Well, yeah, I, I've been a history or research kid since I was um, probably 10 or 12, something like that. I've always been interested. I don't totally understand why. <laughs> um, but uh, for whatever reason, you know, um, uh, that bug hit me and I've never really stopped. I've never, I've never gotten to a point where I said, you know, I, I need to take a break from this. Hmm. Actually, this is what I take a break doing. I take a break from other things to do baseball research, and it's been the case for uh, over 40 years now. Wow.
0: Um, And so it's one thing to do it as a hobby. It's another thing to go to the hall. And furthermore, it's another thing to give up a presumably prestigious career as an astrophysicist to go work in a small town in upstate New York uh, doing this thing. So how did this come to be? Did you get a call one day? Did you actively... Uh, try to acquire this gig? How did it uh, all come together?
1: Well, I, I, I certainly was not on a prestigious career path in, in astrophysics. It just sounds really cool. Okay. I mean, I was really <laughs> a low level guy. But it was fun. It was, I enjoyed it very much. Um, but, uh, you know, I never thought anyone would, would pay me to do baseball history work hmm. or tell baseball stories, which is really what a curator does, which is a storyteller. Um, uh, I didn't think it would really pay me to do that. And quite frankly, um, there's not a lot of jobs out there where someone will pay you to do that. Uh, you're up. Um, there's more jobs playing major league baseball than there are being a baseball curator. Wow. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that it's easier to play major league baseball. It just means there's fewer jobs. So, yeah, it was not really an obvious thing. But what happened was I actually uh, was doing, also doing some web, uh, website work soon after the web was invented, actually, and uh, to the website for the telescope that I was working at, and just sort of on the, on the side, for the fun of it, and um, a job opening occurred at the Hall of Fame to do their website. So I had the baseball part down, I thought pretty well, and it turns out, by for good fortune, I was dabbling in websites, so I had that part down, so I tossed my, my uh, name in the hat there, and they bid on it, and they hired me, Mm-hmm. And I started actually working at the Hall of him as the, the webmaster, but I eventually worked my way over to Curatorial, and now I head up the department.
0: So let's get down to brass tacks here. I mean, I, you know, with this podcast, ultimately it works best when we tell stories. And, uh, you know, just walking around the hall with you, everything became a story. And toward the end of our tour, which tickled me, and I, I feel I need to mention it just because, I don't know, maybe I'm tooting my own horn or whatever, but we were going through old newspapers, and I just noticed that there was a mention it literally in like 1870 or something of somebody making a, something like a catch of a basket. And I was just like, like a basket catch? Were people doing Willie Mays style <laughs> basket catches in 1870? And you looked at it and you said, I don't know. I'm going to go find out. Is that how it comes to be where you have something, you have a newspaper clipping, you have a photo, you say, I don't know. And here you go down that path. You're just, your curiosity was sparked. 30 times a day by the artifacts that you handle every day? Or how does this, how do these flashes come to be?
1: Um, I rely on really good friends who can find things for me. And then Mm. I just, um, pass them off on my own. There you go. (laughs) uh, Plagiarism. is the best way to go. (laughs) It was a great catch by you. Uh, as I recall, I was showing, um, some, you know, an example of just an early, early coverage of a baseball game. It was 1868. Yeah. And, uh, what I like to show people is that, uh, you know, some, some accounts are very brief in the newspapers of the day, but some are extremely detailed. Yes. This is one of these ridiculously detailed play by play. And in it, um, you know, it just says this guy, uh, uh, I think it says Smith batted a baby pop-up, which McBride, this is a guy named Dick McBride, basketed. And you saw that and you said, hey, I wonder if it's a basket catch. And I'm like, hey, that's really a great. Uh, thing that you notice there, I'll look into it. Yeah. And in fact, it was a basket catch. Wow. Which, by the way, has to do with bare hands, there's no, no glove on the hand. Right. So he's doing this basket catch, bare hand. But as far as I can tell, that is the earliest reference to someone making some sort of a basket catch. And, you know, if you do, honestly, if you do enough reading of these early um, uh, descriptions of baseball, you get about into this stuff because quite frankly not too many people do it Hmm. so do you so it's
0: not like it's that difficult it's just so yeah let's let's say that you're researching something let's say you want to ascertain something and you don't know how to do it as you said there aren't that many other people doing it out there so i guess you don't have that many obstacles to clear to get the best guess that you can but like if you're looking for what is the first instance of x do you look at what these Second oldest instance is, do you just go to whatever materials are at your fingertips? Do you go into microfiche? How, how do you physically make these determinations? Cause you're basically the arbiter. If you can figure it out, that's it. That, that, you've codified it. It becomes law. This is in fact the oldest <laughs> reference to a basket catch. This is in fact the oldest X, the oldest Y. It just seems like, uh, like quite a responsibility to do it accurately and responsibly.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, you can't be absolutely certain about these kinds of things. So what I, what I tweeted out, uh, you know, soon after you, you stumbled across this basket catch was I said, it, perhaps this is, this is perhaps the earliest known reference to a basket catch. So first of all, I'm saying two things there. I got perhaps, so I'm hedging my bet and that it's an earliest known reference. So this is a reference to it. How often the catch was made like that is a different thing altogether. Right. the, The earliest known reference. So as a matter of fact, but the fact that he says he basket, you know, uh, McBride basketed, they don't even bother to explain what that means. So my guess is it's not unfamiliar to the readers. Yeah. So it probably was happening before. And perhaps even the phrase was known to others. I haven't stumbled across that yet. So it's the earliest one that I know of. So what, what I did was I did a certain amount of research um, looking on digitized historical resources, contemporary newspapers that have been digitized mm-hmm. and looked for variants of the word basket in articles related to baseball and there's various techniques of doing this and they're not perfect but you do the best you can and I zipped around as best I could I also went to in this particular case there's a great resource called Dixon's Baseball Dictionary yes and Paul Dixon He's has great. put together yeah so you're familiar with it it's a, it's I a know bold, Paul's
0: old yeah one.
1: and yeah and, you know, I, I looked there to see, hey, you know, what is the earliest, you know, time that he used that, that he saw that that word was being used. And, um, you know, you just sort of uh, hammer away at different, there's different methods and, and different roads to go down and you do a, a, a diligent job of that. And then you come to some sort of conclusion, which, by the way, is not definitive. It's just according to the best evidence available. Here's what we're thinking. But I'm not going to say 100% this is the earliest uh, reference to a basket catch. It's just the earliest one that I'm aware of. And quite frankly, one of the reasons I tweeted that out was I would love for someone to say, hey, you know what? I've got an earlier one. That's mm. great. I, you know, I, there's nothing particular about me or you or whoever uh, figuring this out. I just like you know, understanding the situation. It's kind of fun, I think. So um, it's, it's never, you're never 100% sure about anything.
0: Take me through some of your favorite sleuthing examples, some of your favorite things that you uncovered. Or maybe it wasn't even the result that was so great. It was like, I found out this Babe Ruth thing. It changed all baseball history. Maybe it's just that the (laughs) chase was fun itself, that you know, rather than it being this monumental discovery, maybe it's just something that took you six weeks, but then you finally solved it, and that felt very satisfying, even though it was you know, the equivalent of a decimal point on some random game in 1937 that had no bearing on anything. So feel free to hit me with some of your favorites. I'm always interested. We can go one at a time here. What, 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 uh, what stands out to you? Oh, absolutely. So I think, um,
1: uh, you know, I do a lot of this on my blog. I have a, a blog, a blog, called baseball researcher. So it's baseball researcher. That blog I'm time. on it right my, now. It's great. Mm-hmm. And, um, I do have some favorites there. One that actually hits to what you're talking about, which is um, I actually didn't come up with an answer, but it was so much fun digging. Um, and listen, that, that, to me, that's the best part. If I come up with an answer or come up with something, uh, um, you know, that I was trying to figure out and I kind of figured it out, um, uh, that's great. That's actually the case. But I, I really enjoy the chase. I love the digging Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, I think that's, honestly, I think that's the key to finding a good job is is you better like the process. If you're just in it for the ends, you're not in the right job. You got to love the process because usually the process is like 95% of what's taking up your time. So if you're just in it for that 5%, you know, you got to rethink it. So, um, the one that I'm thinking of is, um, a great baseball researcher, a guy named Jules Tygell, who passed away a number of years ago, yep. he he uh, sent out a little message on uh, Sabre L, which is sort of the listserv for members of the Society for American Baseball Research, or it's sort of the, the sandbox where everybody plays uh, digitally. And he sent a message there basically saying, Hey, uh, I was watching the Maltese Falcon the other day, and um, I noticed that in a scene there, there is. Um, a newspaper that's being held by, in, in the hands of uh, uh, the, this guy, the Wilmer Cook, the character Wilmer Cook that's played by uh, the uh, actor, Elijah Cook Jr. Yep. And you look at this newspaper, it actually at one point, practically fills up the entire screen. And um, darn if there isn't a huge photo in there of a catcher making a play at home. And Jules asks the question, which was, can anybody identify, uh, who the, the catcher is and, mm. and what's the situation? He, he was, he mostly said, who's the catcher? But I wanted to know what, what the whole situation is. Sure. So, um, I, you know, that was a long time ago that he had, he had sent that out. I think that was back in 2001 that he actually asked that question. And I didn't really work on it. I would, every once I pick up the, pick, pick it up a little bit and I play around, but I didn't really took it seriously until, until seven or eight years later. And then I really, I got lost in the weeds and I I went (laughs) through the movie and I went, um, not only that, that particular scene, but I went through other scenes as well, because one of the questions that I had was like, well, you know, why should I even believe this is a a real newspaper? Maybe it's just an actor that they took a picture of uh, in in catching gear, although that seems like it's rather elaborate, but you know, In most movies, when you've got newspapers, they're just props. They're not real newspapers. Yeah. And in fact, I went through every single scene in which a newspaper shows up, and every single scene in which a newspaper shows up, it's clear you can you can show that it's a movie prop. Every single scene that is, except for this one, huh. in which this is actually a newspaper. It's a real newspaper, and I was able to figure out, as it turns out, I was actually able to figure out the exact date of the paper and the 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 name of the paper, and um. You'd think, oh, well then, why can't you just go get a copy of that paper and read the, the caption and then you, you to the, to the uh, photo and you have the whole thing solved. Yeah, And the problem is, uh, and, and usually that's what I would do. I'd go to the microfilm. You can get microfilm of these papers and darn, you, you just nail it. Well, as it turns out, not only did I, did I figure out the, the date of the paper and the, it was San Francisco Chronicle and the date was, was June 3rd, but, uh, 18. I'm sorry, June 3rd, 1941. Mm-hmm. But I could tell it was the very, very first edition, and that in fact was the problem. So, the newspaper has multiple editions throughout the day. Back in back in the back in the day, yes. you have, you know, and it, you get a different star. You have the four star edition. That's the, the 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 four star is the fourth printing that day. The five star is the fifth one. And what was known as the bulldog was the very first one that's printed early in the morning. And the reason. Uh, that I could figure out it was that be- was that, um, as it turned out, by dumb luck, the day before uh, was the death of Lou Gehrig. Oh, wow. And And what happened was then that news did not make it to the west coast until after the bulldog edition went out so the bulldog edition goes out there's a big picture of a catcher on it then all of a sudden they literally do one of these hey stop the presses we just got news that the gary passed away they completely relayed out the sports page got rid of this huge picture of the catcher and, and was doing a, a whole article about luke eric and pictures of luke eric and stuff and that's the stuff that made all the other editions, including the editions that were microfilmed, and so I don't have a copy of that photo that was run on the Bulldog edition, so I can't read the caption. So I was able to go a long way towards figuring it out. I even kind of understand why I can't figure it out, but I'm still stuck. And (laughs) so I've been, you know, trying to solve this for a long time, and I still haven't solved it. Um, But, uh, you know, that's, the, the process is so much fun to try and nail the date by looking at all the headlines and seeing what things happened, uh, that I could figure out the dates of, et cetera. But that was a real fun one.
0: Amazing. I love it. That's fantastic. Um, so I want to ask you also about just statistical records because that comes into play too. And you talked about the margin for error. You know, you walked me through, uh, one of the record books that was from the, just from a given season, I think it was 68. And, uh, actually, you know what, before we get into my second question, let's get to the first question which was you walked me through the game log of a certain pitcher, and that led us to a place that I did not expect. So take me through a little bit of that, because I found that to be well, tragic, I guess, in some ways, but also just like, holy cow, the way that things uh, bend into each other was really amazing.
1: So I'm guessing we're talking about Don Drysdale. Correct. Okay, so yeah. So one of the neat things that we have at the, at the Hall of Fame is we have the original... What are called day-by-day sheets for a huge portion of baseball history. Not not every single year, but uh, for much of baseball history, for um, the American League and the National League, and these are for each player in each year how they did statistically each day. And this is information that's that's um, uh, written down at you know the day after a game. Uh, took place because of the official score sheet is sent in by the official scorer to the league officers and they write this all down. They, they, they say, Oh, how did Hank Aaron do today? Well, you know, yep. he, he did, he was three for four and he had a double and he had uh, two putouts and whatever. And that's the official statistics. So we, we house the official statistics. We didn't keep them as in write them down. That was someone else's job. We're keeping them as in holding on to them for historical significance. And, um, and they're, all done by hand, uh, at least for a large portion of baseball history that's by hand. Now it's, of course, it's all digital and electronic, but, um, and, you know, uh, they're very neat, and they can show some really cool things. Now, yes. I'm not a huge stats guy, um, but th- they can be very useful for reasons beyond the statistics. And so uh, one of the ones I, I have pulled out, um, and, I, and I showed you and Amy uh, a couple weeks ago, was Don Drysdale in 1968. Now, of course, Don Drysdale in 1968 had a great season that was a very historic season. Um, 1968, of course, being the season of the, of the pitcher and his success, uh, Bob Gibson's success and lots of other pitcher's success, even uh, not just in 68, but for years leading up to it, was uh, really brought about the change of, of lowering the mound to try and return some sort of balance to the game where a perceived imbalance was was corrected. So uh, of course, Don Drysdale sets a record uh, that has since been broken uh, by Oral Hersheiser of uh, 58 and two-thirds consecutive scoreless innings pitched. And when you're doing that many consecutive scoreless innings, um, you're also uh, it's, it's, it makes sense that you'd also set the record for most consecutive shutouts, which yes. Don Drysdale did. The old record was five, he got six, and he got the sixth shutout on June 4th, 1968 against the pirates he was playing uh uh jim bunning was pitching for the pirates and actually pitching uh not, not a horrible game but uh drysdale won it on the shutout and that was a record breaker and uh that was that took place in los angeles but there was another thing that took place in los angeles on june 4th 1968 and that is uh the democratic primary for the uh um, to see who's going to be the uh, nominee of the democratic party for yep. the presidential election of 68 And uh, Bobby Kennedy won that day. And that evening, he gives what ends up being his final speech Mm. in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. And the first thing he says, and I was showing this to you and Amy, was um, after a couple of minutes of, you know, trying to determine if the microphones are working, is this on? Can you hear me now? Is this working? Uh, Was um, he, he said, first of all, the first thing I want to do is I want to congratulate Don Drysdale for pitching his record six wow. consecutive shutout, hmm. and uh, I hope our campaign has the success that he's had. Now, Hoy. Is, you know, hour or two later in the early morning hours of June fifth, uh, he's shot in the kitchen there uh, by Sirhan Sirhan, or some people believe that's not really true, but we'll yep. go with what <laughs> what you find on Wikipedia, and. Um, uh, and then 24 hours later, on June 6th, Bobby passes away. But, you know, little did he know that the, the first words of his final speech were about baseball. Uh, but he's playing to a Los Angeles crowd. Of course. You know, he's, he, it's, they, they loved it. They ate it up. But it's kind of neat to see how um, baseball, uh, you know, intertwines with uh, American culture, with popular culture and and. And in particular, I love it, and this is what I do a lot on my blog, is I love it when it shows up in places that you're just not expecting it. So I, I like talking about baseball for baseball's sake, where, where you are thinking about it, oh, this is really neat what happened on the, on the ball field. But I love it when it shows up in places that you don't expect. And I guess that's my curse, although I don't think of it as a curse. I, I love yes. it. When I'm walking around, I, I tell people I walk around and I look at the world through baseball-colored glasses. I, I just see baseball everywhere in non-baseball settings, um, I can't really get away from it. And that's why I end up seeing a lot of them in movies or I see a lot of it in uh, uh, you know, references that you wouldn't think of. You're looking at, I'm looking at a medical uh, uh, um, a, a medical journal and there's, a, there's reference to, uh, you know, 19th century performance-enhancing drugs in baseball. I'm like, who would have thought there's performance-enhancing drugs in baseball? Todd Well, this is actually... Uh, 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 one that's not the Pud Galvin one, but oh, but, but yes, there's a there's a, the Pud Galvin is one that people think about. Yes, but um, as it turns out, uh, there's a, um, a different one that happened after Pud Galvin, uh, and and that is uh, uh, actually Amos Rusi and John Ward uh, apparently on the field of play. This is not one of these things like uh, they're 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 using a syringe days before or months before no. to train. They're on the field and uh, taking out a vial of this liquid and drinking it and then walking up to the plate.
0: Wow. The whole
1: thing is completely, uh, you know, it might have been a a placebo effect, but uh, what they were doing was not going to make a change. But, boy, at the time, uh, the article that I found, it talks about how they did this, and and the veins would pop on their neck, and they would hit the ball out of the ballpark. It's really quite blatant. And they, and by the way, it was not illegal at the time. I'm not yeah, saying you right, guys right. did something illegal, but who find you find out of it? They, they, you know, this article was claiming that we they won the the Temple Cup series against the Baltimore Orioles with uh, a couple members of the New York Giants. Who they they tried to disguise their names, but it's pretty obvious who they are. Um, uh, were drinking this uh, liquid out of a blue vial.
0: <laughs> you know, I never thought I would stumble into this thing, but I did. Wow. And, uh, one, you know, great part of the tour, Um and I'd done a tour like this before when Tim Raines was uh, touring the hall with his family, which was really cool and was an honor to go and all that. Yeah. But you, uh, or whoever's the curator, whoever's the, the tour guide at the time, will put a bunch of items on the table. And it's funny, you find yourself, when I was walking around with you, I found myself starting to sleuth and you, you will encourage people to do that too. And so you pulled out a, a set of cleats. Or, sorry, we can't call them cleats. We have to call them spikes, right? Spikes, not cleats. Right. You already no, corrected cle- me on that. Cleats is right.
1: Oh, cleats yeah, is yeah. right. They're they, not
0: they spikes. Were, they were cleats. And they were, and so you said, whose <sighs> are these? And I will go, how would I know? And then you said, okay, I'll give you a clue. <laughs> and then, you know, pretty quickly I got it just because they, and I, the reason for some reason that it stuck was because how small they were. And I'm like, that's got to be Joe Morgan's cleats because Joe Morgan was one of the smallest great baseball players who ever played, you know, other than guys from the, 19th century or whatever, you get to the modern era, I don't know how many dominant players, maybe Altuve were that small, but you, you get to with Morgan. And the one that jumped out at me was the license plate. I love the story of the license plate and that, that's not a lot of information to go on. You know, you're talking about a newspaper and a movie or whatever, but a license plate, like to ascertain where that came from, I found was remarkable. And, uh, you know, I want you, I would love for you to walk us through how you figured out what that was too. Cause it was just like, what could this be like, first of all, why is a license plate in the baseball hall of fame? What does it have to do with baseball? Right. Why is it here? Whose is it? What was the occasion? And it's just, it's so many layers to peel away.
1: Yeah, it it was great. And uh, so the way that came about was, um, uh, every year in general, um, I sort of design a tour, which is, um, we bring VIPs such as yourself and Amy behind the scenes. Um, and, uh, um, certain VIPs, we can show them a little bit about what we do and sort of give them a feel for the breadth and the depth of our collection. And so I try to choose different objects and photographs and ephemera and books, et cetera, to really give a dabble in all sorts of parts of baseball. Um, I don't want to do everything about the 1990s and homers, you know, yeah, I, right, I, I right, got to spread the, the stories around. And um, so what happened with me was i was i was walking past a, uh a storage area where we actually have a, a bunch of actually quite unusual objects which are fun you know it's, it's great to look at a historic bat or jersey or ball um, those are sort of the more obvious ones but there's great stuff there but you know some less than obvious things and so we have maybe i don't know i think eight to ten license plates in our collection and i mentioned to people that you know in general if i'm going to tell the story of cy young we have a cy Young license plate and if I'm going to tell the story of Cy Young, you know, uh, it's better to tell his story through his, the glove that he wore or the baseball that he pitched um, uh, and got, uh, got his 500th win with, you know, that, and that's what a curator does is tell stories through these objects through this ephemera, yeah. through whatever you can get your hands on. And um, in general, it's not much of a story to tell uh, about a license plate that a guy used on his car, um, at least not much of a baseball story. How do I talk about how great of a pitcher he is through his license plate? Now, in general, not that great. So I'm usually, I think it's kind of humorous that we have some of these uh, objects that are a little bit out of the box, but sometimes some of them really don't really help us when it comes to uh, an exhibit. However... I did notice that we had a license plate, of Christy Maston, and I did not know that before. I I had missed that before. Not that I've seen every single object in a collection, but I I thought I knew our license plates, believe it or not. I was wrong. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll research this for a short while, and I'll probably get nowhere, and I really don't have a lot of time, so I'll just move on. But let me give it a little shot. So sure. one of the nice things about the World Wide Web is every every person's little niche interest um, is out there, it seems like. And, and listen, this isn't even a niche thing. There's tons and tons of license plate collectors. So it was no problem figuring out the year of the license plate, which is not on the plate. So this plate is a red plate with white letters and NY on the side. It was obviously the New York license plate. Mm-hmm. But very quickly, I mean, in, in, in 10 seconds, I was able to figure out that it's a 1912 license plate. So I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Uh, that we could nail that down. But uh, still, I'm not really telling you much of a baseball story. And then I thought, well, here, let me go to Google, which I do a lot. And I typed in Christy and automobile. And I just thought, well, maybe I'll bump into, by, by some miracle, I'll bump into a story about an automobile that somehow can connect to this license. plate. I don't really know how to pull that off. Well, I find a gorgeous photograph of – um an automobile that's on the field at the polo grounds. It's driven it out onto the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and the photo's from 1912. It's actually opening day of 1912. And there's a ball player. I can't remember who it is. It's not Maggie. Uh I think it's Doc Quintino, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, leaning over, looking at it. And it's it's beautiful. It's, it's actually a really nice photograph. Yeah. Uh, it, you can see the ballpark. The, the the automobile is over 100 years old, so it's really cool looking. It's a it's a Columbia Night Roadster. It's very beautiful, and but my eyeballs went one place and one place only, and that was went straight to the front and right below the grill of the <laughs> automobile,
0: and there was
1: a license plate, and darn if it wasn't the exact wow. same license plate, which was a little miracle. So sometimes you get lucky, and this one was, got lucky. Now I'm thinking, okay, this is worth digging further. So I find out the exact date was uh, opening day, find out that Christy Matson was the pitcher on opening day in 1912 at the Polo Grounds and he won that game, which was his 290th career victory. So uh, later on that, that summer he got his 300th win. He helps the Giants to their, the 1912 pennant. They end up losing to the Red Sox in the world series, but he has a great year. Um, and, you know, now, you know what, suddenly this license plate. Now, first of all, we, we better understand the license plate better than we did before, which is great. And, you know, listen, but when that license plate came in in the 1950s, there was no way you could have done this. I don't blame them for not knowing what the situation was, but they just got the license plate from, from Chrissy Matheson's uh, widow.
0: Yeah. And she, and you
1: know, that, and that's all they had. Um, But, you know, there's a reason that he kept, you know, that he and then she kept this license plate. This was a, a, a car that was purchased by the fans of New York. Uh, it was sort of a crowdsourcing, and a wow. New York paper said, "Hey, we're going to buy Christie Matheson uh, his very first automobile. We're going to present it to him on opening day. If you want to pitch in, send your money to the, you know the 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 uh, newspaper." They bought him this forty-five hundred dollars car, his first car that he ever owned, and that's the license plate from it. So I can see why he might want to keep that license plate. Hmm. This was not only his first car, but it was a you know it was a fan's forking over for forty-five hundred bucks, which is a lot of money. Big money. To I'll take yeah. it now. And uh, I think that was, that we stuck with him and that's why he kept that license plate. It's not easy to keep the entire car, a lot easier to keep the license plate as a keepsake for what turns out to be a pretty cool moment. Now I can tell a great baseball story, a great story about Christy Madison, a great story about fans, a lot of different cool stories through that license plate. And that's just because you do some research you do some brute force research and sometimes you get a little lucky and it all comes
0: together. Pretty amazing. I love the story too about the, uh, Tribute game for the which Cleveland pitcher was it? Who passed away?
1: Addie Joss passed away Addie in Joss. spring training in 1911, right? And and they put together they they uh, uh, you know ballplayers back then were making good money compared to what they would have been making if they couldn't play baseball. Yeah, or digging a ditch or working in the coal mines, but they weren't making the uh, uh, crazy uh, out of whack money that guys are making now that is just stunning, right? Uh, um, so. When you lose, you, 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 when you go know for play, you, you know, the guys will will um, take up another job or something. Well, as it turns out Eddie Joss died of, bacterial meningitis in the spring training in nineteen eleven. Great pitcher with Cleveland, and he left uh, a widow and a, and a and a boy behind, and so the Indians to uh, raise money. proceeds proceed to that exhibition game to the widow and child, which was going to be helping uh, a, a bit, but, you know, uh, that wasn't going to solve everything for them. And um, and they did, and it, they found an open date uh, much later that summer, uh, in July, I believe it was, It's June or July, I can't recall off the top of my head. And they basically invited the best players from American League teams. It's sort of a who's who of great
0: Yeah, it's amazing. From
1: uh, American League teams to play Cleveland in this exhibition game and, uh, they raised a lot of money. So, I mean, there's Walter Johnson was there, and Clyde Milan was there, and, uh, Eddie Collins, Home Run Baker. Eddie Collins, right. Right. I mean, it's sort of a who's who of, of greats. And this is 1911. This was, uh, you know, a generation before the All-Star game that you and I know of, of was, was invented. Yeah. Um, this is an earlier version of, a, of an All-Star game. Um, and the pit stands were packed. Because people wanted to see this great place, but they also wanted to support uh, the 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 idea of giving money to, to Addie Joss's widow and little boy. And there's a great photograph of this, and a, and, that, and his little boy is right dead center in that photograph. Uh, that's um, a, a cool a, a cool image. And actually, you know what? If you if you type in Addie Joss 1911, if you Google, I'm, I'm, I'm plugging away for Google here. But if you to, if you type in 1911 Addie Joss game panorama. You'll see the picture, and it's um, it's a stunning, gorgeous, gorgeous photo with a fun other story behind it, which uh, uh, is going to be hard to explain uh, through a podcast, but uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great photo.
0: It's, uh, it is hard to explain through a podcast, but the basic uh, version of it is that the guy on the extreme left of the photo and the guy on the extreme right of the photo are the same guy because you couldn't just use your iPhone for panorama. It kind of exposed... Gray, exposed itself gradually and so you had to kind of move with the camera so guys have different facial expressions because it's taking place in a different area it's kind of a different point in time in each case it takes a few seconds or a few minutes to go all the way around or whatever so there's just all right. these easter eggs in a photo like that that are just amazing to me i really love that that was one. Of my yeah Yes. Yeah, so so yes yeah, it, the, the panoramic uh, camera is
1: a very special kind of camera which now everybody knows about because their iphones can do it it mixes up space and time. So the left side of the photo is taken many, many seconds before the right side because it's yeah. panning across this image. And when the camera moves over uh, as it's panning to the right, the guys on the left side are no longer in the field of view. They can relax. They don't have to stand still <laughs> because they're not in the field of view. Yeah. And one of them ran around behind the cameraman and all the way to the other side before <laughs> the camera made it all the way over there. So you see it's actually an outfielder with the Indian named Jack Graney. Jack Rainey is third from left at the beginning, and then you see Jack Rainey again, just a few seconds older, uh, on the right side of the photo. And of course, you, he always, you always keep a straight face, because if you're, if you're cracking up, that first of all, you're gonna, you're gonna get blurred. But you gotta, you kind of play the shtick like it's, oh yeah, this is, this is nothing, no one will notice, and it's kind of fun how that works. But you know what? You can do it with your iPhone right now if you want to. I
0: love it. I love it. I also want to ask you, you mentioned that the license plate, you know, that's a, someone on, so you mentioned you've got you know, a handful of license plate in the, plates in the hall, and that's all fine and good. But I'm always interested in the bazaar. So I want to know, what are a couple of the items that are the weirdest, most unusual? Obviously, you're going to get offered a bunch of stuff. Oh, it's a blade of grass. Well, okay, we can't figure out that the blade of grass is from Yankee Stadium or whatever, so that doesn't apply. But you know, if you're going through it, what comes up as the weirdest stuff that you've actually accepted? Because I know you don't accept everything. Uh, so I'm curious about stuff that you've accepted that is in there that, uh, people might find rather unusual.
1: Well, first of all, hey, I, I like the idea of getting some blades of grass. That's
0: not that bad. But there I, you go. We
1: actually have dirt. We have dirt from, from a number of ballparks. And, and the reason we know it's the right dirt is we are, we collected it ourselves. You know, we had somebody uh, okay. from the staff scoop some dirt from the, from the man of Yankee Stadium or, 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 uh, that kind of thing. So we've actually done that. So that's unusual, I would say. Um, but boy, unusual objects in the Hall of Fame. We d- we do have a lot of wacky ones and, uh, uh, but let me think of some good ones that uh, might work out for you. Um, okay. Uh, I'll tell you one, uh one of my favorite stories and, uh, um, it has a lot to do with actually, um, the origins of the game or the, so the apparent, uh, original, uh, idea for the origins of the game. So. Of course, the Hall of Fame is in Cooperstown, and the reason it's in Cooperstown was that soon after the turn of the century, it was determined by a blue ribbon panel that baseball had been, uh, according to the best evidence available, invented in Cooperstown in 1839 by Abner Doubleday. Now, literally days after that finding was published, it was being debunked, and uh, believe me, no one uh, at working at the Hall of Fame is saying that that, that Double A invented baseball. It is completely and wholly not true, um, but we're not moving anywhere, by the way. But um, it's an important myth, and there's actually meaning behind myth, and that's an important construct in, in, uh, for historians. But here's the scoop. Well, the reason I bring this up is that certainly when we were collecting objects in the early days, 1930s, 40s, 50s, it really, people really did think this is what happened, was that Abner Doubleday really did invent baseball in Cooperstown. And um, they thought, well, let's collect some objects related to that, because you know, so so there's a there's a painting of Abner Doubleday in the collection. OK, so that's a, not too unusual because you can kind of understand that. But here's the object that's very unusual. We have a giant musical instrument. It's... Uh, um, that uh, is called technically it's called a sarusophone. A lot of people heard of a sousaphone. Yes. This is not a sousaphone. This is a sarusophone.
0: Okay. It
1: kind of looks like it kind of looks like a giant uh, trumpet. Um, yeah. I want to say it's about maybe when, if it can stand on the bell end of the of the instrument and it's uh, oh I don't know maybe four feet high something like that and it's really beat up. And it actually is a ceruzofone that dates to the Civil War era. And uh, the story that was told to us, I can't corroborate it, but the story that was told to us when it was donated in the 50s was that it was used in the Civil War by the second cousin of Abner Doubleday. Okay. So let, me ex- let me explain what we've got here. Uh-huh. We have a musical instrument used by the second cousin of someone who has nothing to do with baseball. <laughs> okay. so it's a rather strange object to have. Yes. I would call that one of our strangest objects because really the, the only tie is that, I mean, let me, let me put it this way. Let's pretend just for a moment that Abner Doubleday truly invented the game of baseball. He really was the inventor. Why would we want the... <laughs> Seruzaphone used by his second cousin. Anyway, That's I don't really <laughs> know. Uh, I certainly wasn't on the accessions committee at the time. Um, it's a fun object, but uh, I'm not sure we would have accepted it now. But you know what? We accepted it then, and we're holding on to it. That's and it's, I, you know, it's, it's a very enlightening story. I, I love the fact that we have it because it really can tell you a lot about how collection philosophies changed. You know, you, we're not collecting the same way we collected uh, 20 years ago or 50 years ago. And quite frankly, 10 years from now, we'll probably have a subtly different philosophy than we have now. Hmm. We got to change with the times and, uh, the way we collect will probably be different and there's nothing wrong with the way they did before, but from the high, the but the position that I'm in right now, I'm probably not going to be exhibiting that anytime soon.
0: Uh, I love all this, Tom. Uh, it's, it's I, <laughs> I could geek out on this all day with you. I really, really appreciate your time on all this. And I encourage <laughs> people, uh, to go to the Hall of Fame, and not just for the big stuff. Listen, you're going to see Babe Ruth's bat. You're going to see Jackie Robinson display and all that. stuff. It's, it's fantastic. It's a, The highlights are great, but I, I'm i such a sucker for, like you said, ephemera. And if you are so lucky, I don't know how I got to be a VIP, but if you are so lucky to get a cool tour like this, or even find a way, I, you know, I, I, can people do this? Can people get behind the scenes? Is there a way to do this? I should just ask flat out. Do you have to call in a favor? Um, how does that work?
1: <laughs> it is VIP, and so it's not something that you can go and say, "Oh, where do I pay to get the behind-the-scenes tour?" Right. Uh, so it is just a, a specialized thing. Um, but listen, I, I want to encourage people to—I want people to understand that, hey, when they come to the museum and and uh, just walk through the public space, they're going to have a great time. Tons they're going to see stuff. these really cool Tons. objects, and hopefully, get some engaging, interesting, educational, entertaining, fun stories to go along with it. Believe mm-hmm. me. You'll be very happy going, not necessarily having the behind the scenes tour. That's just sort of a different way to slice things. Yes. It's, I don't, personally, I don't think it's any better or worse. It's just a different way to look at things if you have that tour. But since it's not available to the public, look, we're, we're, we're doing, we're, you know, there's uh, dozens and dozens of exhibits. exhibits that change all the time. So you come one time and come, come again. A year, a year later, you're going to see different things. And, um, I, I think people will be thrilled with what they're seeing above ground, not just behind the scenes. Uh, so don't, people will be – I don't want anyone to think they're going to be disappointed going and no. only getting what the public sees. Uh, yeah, I mean, just really quickly, people often on, on the behind-the-scenes tour say, hey, uh, you have something Babe Ruth. I'm like, you know what? All of our Babe Ruth stuff basically is on exhibit. I'm yeah. not, we don't try to hide anything downstairs. Uh, maybe a Saruza phone or two. But, um, <laughs> no, what's, what's
0: up on exhibit is we're getting the cool stuff up there, believe me. I will say this, though. If you see a fellow with a curious look on his face and glasses walking around the hall, it's Tom. Flag him down. Make him tell you something obscure. <laughs> do it. He'll engage you. I promise. Uh, Tom, what a pleasure. Thanks so much for the tour. Thanks so much for your time on the podcast. And uh, we'll go check out your blog also. What is it again? So it's
1: faultresearcher.blogspot.com. And Jonah, let's do this again sometime.
0: I would love to. Thanks so much.